Lowe's Probember event is happening now through November 24th. It's the perfect time to shop GE appliances for all your properties, like the GE side-by-side refrigerator and the GE dishwasher with active flood protect. Durable and reliable, you can always count on GE to deliver the long-lasting performance you're looking for. Available today, shop the full line of GE appliances online or in-store during Lowe's Provember event, now through November 24th. Lowe's, the new home for pros, U.S. only. Hi, this is Jay Billis of ESPN, and you're listening to the ML Sports Platter. The ML Sports Platter back with you. Download, subscribe, leave feedback, and a five-star review where you get podcasts on your smartphone device. You can hit me on Twitter, at MikeLSports, and of course, ML Sports Platter on Instagram, and on Facebook. We are brought to you by Welch & Company Jewelers, the Allen Angus Pub, and our great friends at Sit Mean Sit Syracuse. Make sure you go ahead and visit the website, sitmeansit.com. If you're in and around Central New York, any dog, any behavior, any breed, get that free consultation today and make uh, you know your lifestyle a little bit easier. Your pup gets uh, top-notch training, and uh, the behavior is in line for you on a daily basis. Sit Mean Sit Dog Training, a proud ML Sports Platter sponsor. Also, a quick tip of the cap, thank you to the Swan and Whitaker families for their support of the ML Sports Platter, as well as Camilla's Golf Club and Matt Graham of State Farm Insurance. Visit his website if you're in and around the great state of New York, SyracuseInsuranceAgent.com. Ask about the rate drops and get a free rate quote today. Like a good neighbor, State Farm and Matt Graham are there for you. Auto Home Life Bank, Health and Business, SyracuseInsuranceAgent.com. Matt Graham of State Farm is the official insurance agent of the ML Sports Platter. I can't wait to have these two guys on the show. (laughs) This book that they just wrote is spectacular. I actually just got done reading it before recording this show. It's called Lamar's Gamble, a tale of the AFL-NFL merger. The detail is incredible. How it all came together is incredible. Uh, the tie-in to politics and Joe Kennedy and JFK and RFK and LBJ is incredible. The time of the 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 the, the merger, uh, the era, the '60s, etc. The star power, Joe Namath, the whole thing—it's all incredible. In fact, it's so incredible that the uh, Emmy Award-winning investigative reporter from CBS and a multi-time uh, New York Times best-selling author, Armin Katayan, says Lamar's gamble is a rollicking, racy. Radically refreshing account of how the old NFL and fledging AFL got hitched. I burned through this book like Patrick Mahomes working the two-minute drill. He ain't kidding. I did the same thing. The co-authors are Billy O'Connor and Frank Pace. Guys, welcome aboard here. And again, folks, get this book, Lamar's Gamble, a tale of the AFL-NFL merger, major bookstores, Amazon.com, and online where books are sold across the board. Guys, congrats. How are you? Thank you. We appreciate it. took Billy and I many, many hours of research and writing to get it yeah no doubt about that let's start with the magical question if the afl nfl merger doesn't take place what does pro football look like today billy why don't you start well the first thing i would say is the amount of money involved would be not nearly as much uh uh, you could and the salaries and uh everything else the pro football gets today would never have occurred without the merger uh, our contention basically is that the merger wouldn't have taken place had it not been for the era that it took place in, in the 60s, because of the tumultual era of the 60s, the tumultual times, and it was just ripe for the merger to happen. And I, we don't believe that it could have happened if it wasn't for, for that particular 
time in history. Yeah, but I, I kind of disagree a little bit because if the NFL merger didn't happen, salaries would not be as big, but the professional football players would still be, the, the TV money would be just as big as it is today. So I've, I've often said that Lamar Hunt is the greatest owner, well, probably the, the most impactful, the most important owner in the history of football and sports for that matter. And I've always believed that the Foolish Club is the most important group in sports history. Do you guys agree with that? Without a doubt. I definitely agree with that. I think Lamar's relentless, relentless pursuit of, of getting an NFL team led to the whole league being started. Uh, so he changed history in a way. He did that for sure. So when do you think the merger ultimately was gaining steam? You know, when the two sides were arguing, it didn't look like it was going to happen, and then all of a sudden a moment happened or a conversation happened. Um, what was that, and, and how did it play out? Billy, why don't you start? Yeah, I, go ahead. Well, go ahead. I, 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 th- I think that, uh, like anything else, money is what drove the, uh, the merger. Uh, when, the, when, the, when the NFL players and the AFL players were going to war for the uh, prospects coming out of college, uh, money just it became the, the money came prohibitive. They had to do something to stop the bleeding. That they were they were going to both going to start losing money, and uh, they realized that the merger was the best for both for both leagues. Yep, I agree completely. So, with that, which was there an individual? I mean, Lamar Hunt speaks for himself and was obviously the quasi leader here. But was there an an, an owner in the Foolish Club? who to this day kind of goes as an underrated figure of all of this, in your guys' opinion? Yeah, I think it's Bud Adams. Uh, because Bud was, you know, Bud was a, became a lifelong friend of Lamar Hunt. And uh, he was the first guy that uh, signed on with Lamar. If, and he was... A, a Texas guy, so they would have two teams in Texas, and I really think that the, the number two guy in this was Lamar Hunt. And and then the third guy would be Ralph Wilson of, of Buffalo because Ralph Wilson was an, as honest as the day is long. And, uh, you know, I know that Lamar was honest as the day is long, and uh, Ralph Wilson was as honest as the day is long, but I think you have to have a guy who's a little bit on the uh, shady side, if you can say that word. I think Bud was at, Bud Adams was that guy. Yeah, not as an owner, but I think Al Davis had a lot to do with it too. I mean, Al Davis was a was a driving force to make the NFL realize that they couldn't win this battle. The book is out. It's amazing. Lamar's Gamble with Tallow, the AFL NFL merger. Major bookstores on uh, Amazon.com and online platforms where books are sold. Billy O'Connor, Frank Pace, the co-authors here on the ML Sports Platter. Brought to you by Bryant and Stratton College and Stanley Law Offices. Um, what do you guys hope people say when they get done reading the book? As far as, you know, from a football fan perspective, it's easy for the modern fan to just flip on, watch all day, watch Red Zone, gamble. We'll get to that in a minute, by the way. Uh, gamble, do their fantasy picks, root for their favorite team. But a lot of people just don't understand how the NFL became what it is today. This is how, obviously. But from a football mind, how do you want people to either relearn about this or find out, oh, really? You know, th- th- this is how the NFL really actually started. 
the, the one we know today? Well, I think that you can look at the back of the book, uh, and one of the testimonials we had was from Dwight Hicks, two-time Super Bowl champion, uh, Super Bowl 16 and Super Bowl 19. Mm-hmm. He said it gave him a better perception of what the NFL is. Uh, and he actually, he absolutely loved the book. Uh, and I think that it'll give everybody, you know, you know, everybody's mindset is what has he done lately. So, you know, history started from the year 2000 in most people's minds. But the real history started in the 50s and 60s. And we, we, we tell that real history of the game. And I think if there's a student of football who loves the sport, who loves history per se, this will be a great riveting read. Yeah, I believe that the story has been told. You know, uh, the story of the merger has been told many times before, but from our aspect, I don't think it's ever been told like this before. Uh, it's a very. I've read eight, nine books about the merger, and uh, with all modesty, I, I, after a while, they start reading like Wikipedia books. You know, it's fact, 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 names, names, names upon names. Where I think our book is more entertaining read, and uh, I think people. Started, won't put it down. That's what I'm hoping for anyway. One thing I, I, I love about the book, and it's no offense to, I mean, I'm a vociferous reader. I, I It's one of the main things I do. Nothing against the biographies that I've read that are 700 pages, 800 pages. I think the Philip Norman, John Lennon book is up in that area. Uh, the Arthur Ashe bio is super long. Tons of books I've read, 300, 400, 500 pages. Even non-bios, as you guys know, are that long. You guys were able to do this in, what, 211 pages or so. You could have gone 300. You could have gone four, five, six. But every single time a chapter ended, it seemed like that sentence was the perfect closer and then bang, on to the next. So I'm going to ask you, it's not one It's not one author. It's two authors. It's not one league. It's two leagues. The merger AFL-NFL, the merger of Billy O'Connor and Frank Pace, how did you do it in 211 pages? Many, much, much, much editing. Believe me when I tell you, we could have. We wrote this book in a year, and it probably took us two and a half years to edit it. We just kept editing and editing and editing and trying to eliminate every absolute sentence and try and make every word count, which I think is important in writing. We had this was our second book, so we we did, our first book was if these lips could talk, which you know Mike was. Uh, uh, you read it and had me on to talk about that book, but that was a, a more personal book. But Billy and I got to, uh, what's the word? We got to hone our writing style on that book. So it made the Lamar's Gamble a lot easier to do. Still, uh, we still had to make it, you know, as tight as possible, but we had the, we had the benefit of having written If These Lips Could Talk first. Without a doubt. I mean, that that, that, that was a formula that uh, we found out that we were able to work together. And uh, and, we, and we tossed things back and forth, back and forth, until we were both satisfied with it. And then the next logical sentence to, to each of us would be, do we need that? Do we need that sentence? Can we say it a different way? Can we say it in a shorter way? Can we make it more concise? And uh, that's why I think it's a good read, because like like you said and so graciously said, there's not a lot of wasted words there, you know. Uh, and and very nice of you to say that each the end of each chapter led to the next chapter because of course you want to strive for that too. You don't want to read a, to put down a book that he's reading because there's so many other outlets for his attention. And uh, 
I, I'd like to be able to say somebody pick up this book on the first page and wouldn't put it down until they, to, to, until they close the, the end of it, you know? I wanted to, I'll tell you that. Um, Carol, Carol Rosenblum, what made, I guess, the full name, Dale Carroll Rosenblum, the owner of the Colts, ended up switching and taking ownership of the Rams. What made him such a son of a bitch? <laughs> well, I, I'm going to tell I, I, Ambition, I would imagine, and, and, and money. I mean, it's, it's, it's a business. Pro football's a business. Uh, as Frank will tell you, entertainment's a business. As, uh, uh, it's show business. And, and I guess the television networks, more than anybody else, recognized that this was drama. Football was a business. And uh, that's what made them interested in, in, in televising the NFL. And, uh, of course, television is what made the sport what it is today. It's a perfect game for television, pro football. Absolutely perfect game for television. And even the field is set up like a television set, you know? Yeah. Uh, people moving up and down the field. Uh, it's, it's just, it, I've seen, I'm a big fan of sports in general, and baseball and hockey and basketball. But no sport is more perfect for, for television in the NFL, which was one of the reasons it surged in popularity. You know, I, I remember when I was a kid in the 50s, pro football wasn't but growing up in the Bronx, Tough. six and seven years old. Baseball was always our number one sport. Willie, That's Mickey, and the Duke. You, you, you lucky guy, Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. Oh, yeah, I was a lucky guy, all right. Yeah. I was a, well, I lived in a, about 20 blocks from Yankee Stadium. Yeah. So all my friends were Yankee fans because those were the Yankee powerhouse years in the sure. 50s with Mantle and, uh, and the rest of that crew, Zudo and Thera. And uh, I was a giant fan. I was stuck on Willie Mays and West Western. And, uh, and I was a catcher, and West Western was my hero. So I used to get my chops broke continually by guys, all my friends, because I was a giant fan. Yeah, and then they and then they took your and then they took your team away. Without a doubt, I mean, second maybe boxing. Boxing was big in the fifties. Yeah, yeah. But football wasn't really on our radar until it started getting televised. And of course, again, when when the AFL came in, when Namath came in, uh, in that time in the sixties, we were young, restless, and uh, there was a whole atmosphere starting to distrust authority whether it was the Pentagon Papers, whether it was the, uh, uh, the commission that investigated Kennedy's death, the Warren Commission. Uh, but people started, and the Vietnam War, people started to have a distrust of authority. And I think uh, when the AFL came in, with Namath as an anti-hero, that sort of captured the young people's attention, you know? So we're here at Marshall's with Liz for some holiday shopping. She's really nailing it this year, isn't she? Oh, yep. She's got a record player for Amy. A gorgeous cozy sweater for Jason. And some hot pink fluffy slippers for her sister. The perfect gift. Wait a sec. (gasps) She's getting a pair for herself. Well, with prices this good, it would be rude not to. You know what? She totally deserves it. Oh, totally. Happy holidays, everyone. See you at Marshall's. Fabulous brands. Feel good prices at Marshall's. Cloud is powering tomorrow's transformative missions. Federal agencies are partnering with SAIC to help them meet these critical moments. Where bold moves require confident blueprints. Where you can accelerate transformation through consistency. Where you can innovate forward and never look back. SAIC quickly and securely migrates large-scale workloads to the cloud with the confidence you need to assure your mission. Learn more at SAIC.com slash cloud. Your next career move could be your best. 
Verizon Retail is where people learn, grow, and succeed. We offer the potential to earn up to $50,000 annually and amazing benefits that start on day one. Get perks including half off your wireless phone plan, up to $8,000 per year in tuition assistance, and a 401k match to help you reach your goals. Pursue your ambitions today. Learn more and apply at verizon.com forward slash retail careers. So one thing that, you know, comes up in the book a lot is the gambling aspect of, of everything. Um, Rosenblum, I think the conversation was with Lamar Hunt, right, where he tried to convince Lamar, you know, uh, hey, you know, or Dave Al Davis, Al Davis and Lamar Hunt, and Davis tried to convince uh, Hunt to call Rosenblum and say, hey, you know, like, let's make this thing a little closer in Super Bowl three, right? He can make that happen. Lamar was like, no way, you know, religious beliefs, everything I, 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 I stand for, I want to win this thing fair and square. Um, do you guys believe that the late part of the NFL or the AFL-NFL in the merger days, Super Bowl three, especially at the top of the list, do you believe that any of those games were, were, were you know, fixed? No, no, we don't. Uh, but we 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 asked the question: Could it be fixed? Yeah. And we asked the question. We talked about you know four or five or six areas that if the game was fixed, it could have been fixed around six, five or those five or six things that happened. But no, we just asked the question. We just asked the question. Uh, you know, we asked a lot of questions in the book, but we didn't answer any of them. But, you know, we'll, we'll leave the reader uh, to draw your own conclusions. Uh, did Mike, do you think it could have been fixed? I mean, it, the thing is, sports, they, games, I mean, the NBA, I've always felt with these, especially recently, and I don't, I haven't turned on a second of the NBA all year for a lot of reasons, um, but... The fourth quarter thing has always been really odd to me. I mean, how many times do you see in the NBA, countless times, you know, a team's up 20 points to start the quarter, and all of a sudden in five minutes it's magically down to three. Um, and it happens all the time. If it just happened here and there, I'd be like, eh, I wouldn't really think anything of it. I, I don't think so um, with those games. I mean, I think fair and square, I mean, Earl Morrill threw some bad passes, I guess. Um, could there been, have been influencers? Yeah. But I've always felt guys that I think it's awfully, awfully, awfully difficult to just simply throw, you know, games, I mean, at, at, at ease and, and, and for viewers to, to see it. And plus you're a competitor. I mean, at the end of the day, these guys are still bottom barrel competitors. So I don't think so, but I think there's some influence to do so. Uh, and probably owners and players and a lot of other people thought about it, um, but I, I don't. Yeah. I don't think so in the end. I don't. Yeah. Well, well, it's an interesting question for us to ask, though. We don't. We don't think that the games were fixed, but it was an interesting question for us to ask. Yeah. Yeah, and it's more of a lady and a tiger aspect, you know. Like we leave it up to the reader. We just present our our side of the story uh, and factual parts of the story. Most of this has been documented many times in many books. We present it from a different light, but uh, we leave it up to the reader. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 in the end, it's like, like Frank just asked you, Mike, do you, do you think that they were fixed or not? Well, the enormous influence of money and television. 
I mean, you know, like you talked about the NBA just now, how the last five minutes magically seems to be tighter, the games. Well, of course, that's great for the viewer. It's great for the sponsors. Uh, you don't turn off the game. Uh, I don't know how many times I've heard football commentators say with 21-point lead with four minutes. I've seen this team come back before because they don't want you to turn the channel, obviously. And again, the NFL controls exactly who does their commentary. So, you know, again, we, we present a number of different aspects of the game and leave it up to the reader. So Car- Carol Rosenblum, one more on him. Um, I didn't realize the end went like that, guys. Can can you get into his, his the end of his life? That is that is a that is a wild deal. Well, Carol Rosenblum was a, a an a, a, an inveterate swimmer, and he was uh, he was drowned uh, off of the coast of Los Angeles, and uh, I mean off the coast uh, of Florida. For and it was uh, it was a dubious situation to say the least. Uh, some people felt it was a mob hit. Some people felt uh, other people were involved. Uh, even Steve Rosenblum thought it wasn't an accident. Uh, and uh, you know, Georgia was Georgia was was with him in Florida at the time. Did she have anything to do with it? Who knows? Uh, but again, we asked questions uh, about it, and uh, we let, leave the reader to draw their own conclusions. Yeah, one of the main things I think about Rosenblum that we present in the book, if you listen to commentators in the NFL, if you listen to uh, many, many books written about the subject, uh, they present it all as milk and honey. Well, nothing's milk and honey. So. We're just showing a little more sordid side of it uh, and the obvious ties that he had that have been documented with uh, unsavory characters. Yeah, unsavory, so, correct. He, Meyer Lansky and Lou Chesler and all of the mafia kingpins uh, of the 50s and 60s. Carol was in bed with him, as was uh, Art uh, Modell. And Art Modell. So they, and Wellington Mara owned racetracks. Uh, there was a lot of skullduggery going on in the NFL in the 50s. The book is out. It's you amazing. Know, I think of uh, the line in The Godfather where uh, Pacino says, uh, you know, the, the family's moving into legitimate businesses now. You know, we're trying to get more legitimate. And for my mind, I was a bookmaker for years in the Bronx. In fact, my first book, Confessions of a Bronx Book, he sort of told us a tale about being a bookmaker in the Bronx. And I saw some very suspicious things when I was taking action. And uh, I just said to myself a couple of times, well, this game just doesn't seem like it's on the level. And that's my opinion, again. That's not, not the, uh, really about the book. But uh, there's, there, was, there was just there's so much money involved and there were so many unsavory characters involved. We're just trying to show another light to the NFL, you know. Yeah. It wasn't all milk and honey impurity. Yeah, yeah. I like milk and honey. I just don't like them together either. Uh, Lamar's, <laughs> Lamar's Gamble is out. It's online. Uh, major bookstores. Go get it. Amazon.com and your uh, local bookstore. It's incredible. Lamar's Gamble, a tale of the AFL-NFL merger. A couple more quick questions here for Billy Mike, O'Connor like and to, Frank Pace, the co-authors. Mike, Mike I'd just like to mention that uh, on our upcoming podcast next week, I believe, uh, we'll have Upton Bell, oh. who was the former New England Patriots general manager, and uh, he promises to be, uh, he's going to be talking about the book and his experiences 
with Carol Rosenblum and all of these people. So wow. I'm, I'm looking forward to that podcast. It's a, a Mick, a Mook, and a Mike.com. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. I subscribe on YouTube, of course. The New York Titans become the New York Jets. How was the franchise saved? Billy, start that off. Well, the Titans were run like a, a floating crap game. You know, they, they were they had no money. Uh, Harry Wisner was probably the poorest of, uh, of the foolish club, and uh, he was trying to survive pretty much. And uh, it was a second class operation all the way. They're being run out of the polo grounds. And at the time, the polo grounds was far from the from the citadel that Willie Mays roamed in the outfield. You know, it was broken down. It was in Harlem. Uh, there was a lot of crime in the neighborhood. People were reluctant to go there. And uh, when they, he was running out of money, it was actually influencing the possible survival survival of the AFL, as Lamar Hunt recognized, because New York and California are the two biggest markets. So they had to have a strong New York team. And Sonny Werblin came along and recognized there was a bargain in the making that he could get to buy the Jets for a million dollars. And one of the things I like about the book, if you're an NFL fan, the name Jets. I mean, how many young kids that are Jet fans know that the Jets came about, the name came about because the franchise was out by the airport, Shea Stadium was out by the airport, and Jets rhymed with Mets, and it was a logical name for them. And of course, then we bring in Joe Willie Namath, who's a... Uh, I mean, you, you can write three books about Namath. Uh, first, you gotta, first, before you bring in Joe Willie Namath, you got to bring in Sonny Werblin. Without a doubt. And Sonny Werblin took over the franchise from Harry Wisner, Harry Wismer, and gave them the wherewithal to sign Joe Namath. And the money, and the money. He had the money, he had the uh, the conglomerate that he put together. Again, these were gamblers, you know, some of these guys, they, they own racetracks, and uh, you almost have to be a gambler to take a chance on a franchise like that, you know, and uh, and I'm not knocking that. I mean, uh, that's just facts. That's just, they're there. Uh, so, Werblin had as much to do with with saving the AFL by saving the NFL, the AFL, the AFL, from saving the New York franchises as anybody else, a visionary. So yeah, you could ask, you could ask the question without without Sonny Werblin, there would probably be no merger. Yeah, no doubt. I know Wismer had a, a big influence though in the TV revenue sharing uh, with Lamar Hunt. He kind of suggested that. A little bit as well. Both important in their own right, but you're right. Werblin uh, makes so much of, of, of it happen. Um, the, the, the politics tie-in with the Kennedys and uh, the interest level of the, you know, the, the hot shots, the big wigs, Joe Kennedy, all the money, uh, obviously, you know, JFK, and that's, that's a whole other, you know, that's a whole other, you know, JFK wins the presidency and uh, so many people think it was because of ties to, uh, you know, uh, people in the mob Chicago. And, and, and Chicago and Joe's Joe's money and yeah, sure, all that. Uh, but but politics and this merger, how did the two sides sort of blend into, you know, each other's world? If that makes sense, if I'm asking that right, Frank, start off. Well, you know, uh, Joe Kennedy was having a party, and he invited uh, Carol Rosenblum. <laughs> to attend, yep. uh, Carol, Carol Rosenblum, uh, another invitee, was a fellow by the name of Lou Chesler. And Lou Chesler was a, uh, as crooked as the day is long. And uh, Lou Chesler brought 
a young woman with him who became who was to become many many years later Georgia Rosenblum uh, and those ties uh, were were incredible how Rosenblum was tied to Chesler who was Chesler was tied to Meyer Lansky uh, Meyer Lansky was involved in, in the Cuba situation uh, the Cubans uh, uh, the, the assassination of John F Kennedy was tied to a a Cuban sympathizer or a Russian sympathizer. Uh, all of those things were tied in the book. And Billy Billy actually did more of the research than me on that. But uh, I'll let you uh, expand on it a little, Billy. Yeah, well, you know, the way I would summarize it, is when the NFL started, there every, all the owners were losing money. All of them. It was television that when they realized the potential of the NFL that they put up the money that really allowed the NFL owners to start making money and the AFL to survive. But if you look at the NFL from a, through a telescope, the NFL is basically illegal. It's a monopoly. You're not supposed to have sports monopolies. So how did they get around that? Uh, the money from the television merged with the NFL and then they were able to buy politicians. And that's exactly what it is, is buying politicians. And the, uh, anti- the antitrust suit also, they controlled, the poli- they controlled politics. So they, could, they controlled the Senate and the House so that they can get this... Uh, yeah, antitrust legislation through. What, what, what made Al Davis and Pete Rozelle such enemies, do you guys think? When, when did it really start to just go, go into a, a whole other level with those two? Well, I think they're both proud men, number one, and you have to be proud to be that ambitious. And, and uh, we talk about Al Davis's IQ. We are remarkable. Oh, yeah. a very bright guy. Yeah. Uh, and a street fighter, Brooklyn street fighter. And uh, I think the fact that Al Davis kept one-upping uh, Roselle was both an embarrassment to him and he had to hang on to his job. I mean, it's the owners. That's another thing about the gambling aspect of this book. Uh, Roselle came always came down hard on players that gambled, and rightfully so, because the whole idea of the, the league being impeccable, he had to come down hard on them. But if, if you work for the owners, and the owners are gambling, who's going to come down on the owners? I mean, they, he works for them. Uh, you don't investigate your boss. Yeah, we say, we say for sure that Rosenblum, uh, we're documented through Al Besseling, who was a, a professional golfer in the late 50s, early 60s. Uh, he said that... Rosenblum made a million dollar bet on the Super Bowl, uh, and he, and he knew that because he was he was hired as a runner to pick up uh, the money in New Orleans because he said he had a tournament in New Orleans the next week. So uh, Billy's right; they, the owners came down hard on the players, but the owners uh, and their commissioner let a gambling slide because a lot of those guys were gamblers, big gamblers. What? Yeah, I mean, you have DiBartolino in San Francisco. I mean, he had no time. Oh, yeah, DiBartolo, yeah. There's a tremendous yeah. amount of yeah. fagazi things going on. Yep. And again, it's up to the reader to decide sure. how much of it is, uh, how much of football is influenced by the mob. All we do is present the facts and leave it up to the reader to make his own conclusions. Right, yeah, fans, readers, you know, it's the same thing as, like, you know, some people think, well, Pete Rose should still be in the Hall of Fame. Shoeless Joe should be in the Hall of Fame. And then, you know, that whole argument will never die. And this one probably won't either. Um, 
it's very difficult for me to believe Mike that anybody could be a, a gambler by nature, you know, especially your better gamble, like people that own racetracks and slot machines, and and all of a sudden they take over football franchises, and it never occurs to them maybe I should make a bet on or against my team. I mean, I'm not saying that happened, but it's hard for me to believe it didn't happen. Yeah, yeah. What- coming from a, coming from an inveterate gambler. Yeah, <laughs> I'd always be looking for an edge. There's no doubt. That's about right. It. That's right. What, what do you guys hope? And then, Billy, I want you to share an, an experience in closing with this too. What do you guys think the foolish club would first say about the league today? I think they'd be jumping right. for joy. I mean, that's that's my opinion. I think they'd be like astonished at what it's become. I, I mean, all the noise. Made about name and salary, the four hundred thousand. Oh God, bargain! Years. And I remember this like it was yesterday. I mean, bargain. Yep. I was in the army, and I was talking to a kid from Florida, who was my roommate, and I said four hundred thousand dollars. Nobody's worth four hundred thousand dollars. And he turned around, and looked at me, and said, "He's worth every single penny yeah. of that money." Yep. And I thought he was wrong, but now I mean, there's second string guards for the Bengals making three million a year. Sure. Uh, guys who wouldn't even know their name. So I think it'd be jumping for joy at what it's become. It's become a, a juggernaut, an entertainment juggernaut. I mean, people get their fix every Sunday by watching the NFL. It's become, a, you know, the, what is it, the opiate of the mass as well. It's replaced Sunday mass. You know, it's, it's, people don't go out because they want to watch the NFL, you know? Yeah, it's remarkable. And I almost look at the AFL-NFL merger creating all the things that we have today in sports from the TV to the gambling to the fan interest to fantasy sports. I mean, it, it's just there's so many layers to it from this merger, you know, going back to... And what does that do, Mike, but create more gamblers? What's that? I mean, that's exactly what this fantasy yeah. league is yeah, all yeah. about. I mean, if you don't want to bet uh, real money, you get involved with the fantasy league, sure. and you can bet a little bit of money. Right, you're kind of you're kind of sliding the back door doing it, you know, but it, it, it's... Yeah. It, but... This reminds me sort of of like when Tiger Woods hit the tour, where we look back now, 24 years ago, 25 years ago, he becomes a pro, leaves Stanford, wins the Masters in 97, and then ba-boom. And you fast forward to now, 2021, look at all the purses. Look at the average golf tournament. Guys are winning, making a million bucks, winning, you know, average tournaments now. It used to be... 20,000, 40, 50, 100, 200 at the most. Now it's a million. Major winners are making a couple million. You win a major, you're a global guy like Matsuyama and John Rahm. Now you have unbelievable, unbelievable ramifications and ripple effects for years in terms of making money. The growth of the sport, the global part of it. I mean, the NFL is now global. We've been talking about maybe moving a team into London. I mean, do you guys see that comparison as well? Like Tiger, looking back now with the growth of the game, the Foolish Club, the merger with the growth of the NFL, I, I think there's a lot of similarity there. Yeah, I think I think the NFL is much, much, much bigger than Tiger. Uh, Tiger was one person. Sure. Uh, if you had four or five Tigers, that would be one thing. But as Tiger was an enduring figure, uh, and the NFL has had a lot of enduring figures. Uh, and uh, the NFL is much bigger than PGA programming. PGA golf. Uh, so I, you know, I, I'm really looking more at now the NCAA hmm. because the NCAA has uh, let go of open up Pandora's box with allowing their athletes to uh, get 
sponsorship and make money. And that'll, that'll permeate now through the colleges and even into the high schools and the youth sports leagues. And I think that will be a disaster, at least at the professional level. Uh, it'll, it can be controllable a little bit. I'm not sure about the NCAA. Hmm, interesting. Um, in, in closing, Billy, if you don't mind sharing, you know, for my listeners, obviously I know you were a 20-year vet with the New York City Fire Department and, uh, man, 9-11, uh, 2001, uh, you know, lives in our hearts still forever, obviously, and was arguably the worst day in this country's history. You were a first responder. Can you can you just kind of get into that experience for my listeners, what it was like, well, like you know, the morning and then, and then also how that, how that, horrible uh, day really impacted you, too, you know, moving forward. Well, Mike, you know, I, I can start by leading into that. By, uh, I, was, I was an 18-year-old kid in the Bronx, and I, and I went to Vietnam. And uh, after Vietnam, I came back, and I really didn't think I could see much worse than I saw Vietnam. And, uh, but 20 years on the FDNY, I was the proudest 20 years of my life, sure. by the way. You know, it was a, yeah. a wonderful, wonderful experience. You have a chance to fly like an eagle or, or just let it roll off your back. But they, these are the opportunities to be more than than you are individually because you're always part of a team and uh come 9-11 i was only down there for three or four days because my mom had alzheimer's and i had already retired but i went up there to work on the dig like everybody did there was nobody on my job that didn't find themselves down on the dig uh whether they were retired or not and uh i gotta tell you mike that day the days that i spent on that dig made vietnam look like a day at the beach it was uh Horrific, absolutely horrific. Uh, we were peeling guys down there. Uh, like the cartoons where you see a steamroller go over a guy and they peel him off the floor. Well, that wasn't far from what was actually happening down there. And the smells. And to this day, I, I get together with the brothers, with the firemen on golf outings and, uh, you know, fishing outings and sailing outings. And uh, our, our next book, Frank and my next book called Combustible, uh, the closing six chapters are about 9-11. And to do research for that book, I would look at the fireman in the face, and this is 20 years later, and say, what do you remember the most about that day? I don't want to know. I don't even want to know what you remember. What is it you absolutely cannot forget about that day? And I got to tell you, Mike, these guys put their hands in their, in, in, in their face in their hands and weep. And they can't even tell me for 45 or 50 seconds and look up and say, Billy, it smells smells. I'll never forget the smells. I'll never forget how the bottom of my shoes melted. I'll never forget finding an arm with a, with a ring and a wedding ring on it. So the repercussions from that day are, you know, manifested throughout the whole FDNY, not to mention the amount of brain power we lost. You know, we lost, we, we lost an awful lot of brain power. Pete Yancey, the head of the department, got decapitated. So many deputy chiefs. So much brain power that it's going to affect the fire department, the New York City fire department, for years to come. And uh, it was just a horrific, horrific day. And if I had to pick any one day that was the worst day in the United States history, I would pick 9-11. Yeah. You know, Michael Judge. Um, Mickey Judge. Yeah. yeah went to Michael. Yep, yep. Went to, went to St. Bonaventure, which is my alma mater, and was um, down there, you know, um, remarkable, given, remarkable man. Yeah, Whenever given. I don't care if it, if a fireman, very few firemen, there may be atheists. Yeah. Uh, there's nobody in the world that would ever disparage Michael Judge. Yeah, he, amazing, amazing man. He was down there giving final rights to a lot of people, um, and obviously he got killed. He was the first 
certified fatality. Yeah, he was told to get out of the building because the yep. collapse was coming, a potential collapse. And he yep. said uh, he refused to do it. He was doing the Lord's work. And uh, <laughs> so they came. Matter of fact, he was victim number one. Yeah, he was He was the first certified fatality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly right. Unbelievable. Was, uh, wow. Well, yeah. my old house, 60 engine and 17 truck, was known for years and years as a hard luck house because uh, we were a very, very busy company in the South Bronx. And we had about seven deaths, guys that had died throughout the years, and it was considered a hard luck house. Of course, 9-11 changed all of that. You know, every house in Manhattan became a hard luck house because they responded first, and some companies got entirely wiped out. Michael Judge used to come to our house for Memorial Mass every year, and uh, I had the great, great uh, privilege of meeting Michael Judge on many, many occasions, and uh, he was a one-of-a-kind human being, just a, a remarkable, remarkable human being. Yeah. Well, this has been absolutely incredible. I knew it would be. Lamar's Gamble, a tale of the AFL-NFL merger. Billy O'Connor and Frank Pace, the co-authors. Go get it online where books are sold and your local bookstores, Barnes & Noble, etc. Guys, thank you so much for coming on. Hopefully we'll uh, we'll chat down the road, and who knows, maybe we'll be able to meet someday soon as well. So thanks so much, and congrats again. got to be great. our great privilege, Michael. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. Look forward to meeting you someday down the road. For sure. The ML Sports Platter is brought to you by Stanley Law Offices, Bryant and Stratton College, and our great friends at Welch and Company Jewelers. Go ahead and log on to welchjewelers.com today. Shop the showcase for the best jewelry around Welch and Company Jewelers. Tip of the cap thanks as well to Barks and Rec Doggy Daycare and Camilla's Golf Club. Go play Camilla's 18-hole layout is tremendous. The greens, it's in amazing, amazing shape. Camilla'sHillsGolfClub.com. Check about 2022 memberships as well and stop by the pro shop grab some under armor gear and the restaurant the burgers are to die for their wraps and more so uh, head on over and play 18 holes at camillus wherever you are in new york state golfers travel you'll want to travel and go to the shop makers course camillus golf club for more log on to camillushillsgolfclub.com i'm mike lindsley hit me on twitter at mike l sports this is the ml sports platter as i always tell you enjoy the games positively impact our communities throughout the country. What do you think a private Christian education looks like? Grand Canyon University graduates 25,000 students yearly and offers more than 225 high-quality programs across nine colleges. Find your purpose at GCU. Visit gcu.edu. Make your next career move your best. Verizon Retail offers the potential to earn up to $50,000 annually and amazing benefits starting on day one including product discounts and tuition assistance. Apply today at verizon.com forward slash retail careers.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.